I'll make the uh, weekly reminder. Whatever. Good afternoon and welcome to Purdue University and the Security Seminar. Uh, our speaker this afternoon is Gene Kim. He's the founder of the Tripwire Software Intrusion Detection System, which he developed here as a undergrad working with Professor Spafford. And many of you might recognize that as a company that sells uh, software in that arena. Since 1997, I think Tripwire was formed as a company. So Gene Kim is the chief technology officer there and co-founder, along with uh, many other exploits in that area, including author of several books in the area of audit. So Gene. Thank you very much. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I'm here to talk about prioritizing processes and controls for effective and measurable security. This is actually an area of uh, tremendous passion for me, which is really stems from some work that I've started in 1999, which is studying a group of high-performing IT operations and security organizations that we used to call geniuses of people with good kung fu. Right? These are people who talk differently, acted differently, and had profoundly different operational results than your typical IT organization. So, uh, you know, why do we say that? Because they had phenomenal service levels as measured by mean time to repair and mean time to repair failures. They had great security as measured by early and consistent integration of uh, security into the IT operations lifecycle. They had a great posture of compliance as measured by fewest number of repeat audit findings and the lowest amount of staff dedicated to compliance activities. But oddly enough, they also had the highest efficiencies as measured by high service to admin ratios and uh, amazing amounts of unplanned work, you know, less than 5%. So... Uh, there were uh, nine, 11 of these organizations that we had identified. You know, they included uh, Ken Silva, the VP of Operations at VeriSign, Mike Prospect, the VP of Operations at uh, New York Stock Exchange, Jennifer Bay, the CISO at uh, Bear Stearns, Ken Larson, the VP of Operations at Schlumberger SEMA, Kevin Bear, the CTO of IP Services. There were 11 of these organizations that all were doing the same thing, you know, each, you know, that they had developed Darwinistically, each to prevent the last disaster from happening again. So they say behind every FAA regulation is an airline crash, Right, so too did each one of these organizations derive the same methodology of running day-to-day -day operations and security, uh, each to prevent the last disaster from happening again. So in uh, 1990, about 2000, I started working with the CTOs of one of these organizations, and our goal was to capture and codify what each one of these high performers did, and that's what we called uh, the visible ops methodology. Our goal was to really kind of capture uh, and really understand, you know, what did they eat, what did they breathe, and so we published this in 2004. And um, we co-founded the IT Process Institute around it. It's a nonprofit organization, or rather, uh, you know, to uh, really do three things: do quantitative benchmarking, research, and development of prescriptive guidance like Visible Ops. Uh, so amazingly enough, uh, in the last, you know, since we published it, we've sold 45,000 copies. And so, what do we do next? Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today: is really ask the question, "Hey, is this stuff that we put into Visible Ops true?" <laughs> right? Um, and uh, we actually expanded the problem statement a little bit to say. Uh, when you take a look at process frameworks like ITIL or control frameworks like COBIT and 7799 or the NIST security documents, right? Um, you know, if you've seen the way these documents are generated, you know, uh, you'll know that, hey, uh, there's not a lot of testing that goes on, right? You know, people make stuff up or, you know, they get inherited by tradition or it's just a good idea, right? So compare that to what happens in the drug world, right, uh, in pharmaceuticals, right? There's, uh, you know, very large, you know, structured uh, empirical drug trials that must happen before you can go to market. Right? And so our goal was to really see if we can replicate that same methodology and uh, solve what I think are some big problems um, or come up with answers to some big problems. Okay, how do I... Arrows on, the Arrows on the keyboard? Okay, there we go. 
So uh, this is what this is uh, called the IT Controlled Performance Study uh, that we've led at the IT Process Institute, and uh, we had a large cast of supporting characters, including uh, PhD researchers from uh, Florida State University, University of Oregon, Carnegie Mellon University, and Syracuse University. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is really talk about uh, the problem statement and uh, maybe just kind of give you some core belief that we had going into this, then really go into the quantitative research. I'll go through the methodology and the key findings, and then uh, conclusions, and then also a call to action. So, you know, the part, first part of uh, good science, right, is you have to phrase the problem uh, correctly. And so what we, uh, the problem that we saw was, um, you know, that IT management and IT security management have difficult jobs, right, because they have, you know, when you're in IT, you have two main requirements deliver new projects to the business or, you know, the organization that is supporting you, and then operate and maintain what you have, right, uh, and do that effectively, efficiently, with compliance, securely, uh, so on and so forth. The second thing is you have, you know, fra descriptive frameworks out there like ITIL or COBIT. How many people here have heard of ITIL or COBIT? Okay, some of you. So, you know, ITIL is kind of the... Uh, IT operational framework that kind of describes the major processes that happen inside of IT. Love ITIL. COBIT is um, you know, the same thing, but from an audit and control perspective. Many security people use it, but uh, how many people have heard of uh, COBIT or 17799? Okay, so that's uh, you know, uh, the kind of orthogonal set, right? So you have processes and controls are orth orthogonal. So uh, the problem with both of these is that you know, they're descriptive, right? They're like a dictionary. They're defining things. Um, Organizations don't do dictionaries, right? Uh, they do projects, right? Uh, so another way to put it is, you know, if you want to write the great American novel, you don't have to use every word in the dictionary, so which words do you use, right? And I think uh, we want to sort of establish what those are. So what they also have in common is that, you know, these guidance or these descriptive frameworks are based on, you know, anecdote or uh, belief, right? How do we test them? So when... Uh, what we've observed is that when IT management, that includes security management, you know, can't bring quantitative science and empirical science to bear on these problems, you know, that's when you see transformations fail, projects fail, right? Now, people not hitting their goals, and that was, that's what leads to failed initiatives and projects. But um, more important from a people perspective is that you know, uh, you, you know, the people fail in what they're set out to do, and you can only do that so many times before you get, kind of get eased out of the organization. Am I making sense here? So far, so good? So, uh, you know, uh, this is what kind of the problem statement, and I love this quote here that came from Dr. Longstaff at uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University at the Software Engineering Institute. He said, he's on our advisory board, and he said, IT people are valuable and therefore worthy of study, right? So we want to see if we can come up with better answers to these things. Let me show you the graph that kind of started it all out for us. Um, this is almost four, three, four years ago, which is this graph. When we plotted this way, it kind of helped make more concrete a deep suspicion that we had, which is that one of the byproducts of effectiveness is efficiency. Or maybe from a security perspective, one of the byproducts of effective and efficiency is security. Why do we believe that? What this graph shows on the x-axis, well, let's go on the y-axis first, is um, you know, the number of servers under management. Right? Uh, how many servers are you managing? Right? And I know there's more that IT manages than servers, you know, databases, applications, you know, networking devices, all that stuff. But you know, back then we called it servers. But on the x-axis is what is the server sysadmin ratio? In other words, what is the span of control uh, of each you know, sysadmin on the line? Right? Uh, and, that's, uh, and what we found was that those organizations that we called high performers also had stunningly high server sysadmin ratios. You see how that your typical IT organization has a server sysadmin ratio of around 25 to 1, but the high performers 
are four to five times higher at 125 to one or above. Does that kind of make sense? So what we found was that one of the, you know, those organizations that were the most effective were also efficient, right? So just to kind of benchmark this, uh, uh, some mental benchmarks is that when you take a look at highly uh, specialized infrastructure like, you know, the rendering farm for Lord of the Rings or, you know, uh, you know the, um, you know, Google or Akamai, you're looking at services admin ratios of 12,000, 15,000 to one. So, uh, so the, the big realization here was, wow, why is it, you know, that, uh, you know, high performers are also efficient in addition to effective. So far, so good? Okay. <clears throat> so, as I mentioned, what we did, uh, you know, at that point in time was really capture and codify what those organizations were doing. And that's what led to the visible ops methodology. And I'll share a little bit of this uh, with you at the end of the presentation. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it was really meant to kind of codify why did the transformations work in the high performers and why did the hundreds or even thousands of transformations we've seen not work, right? In other words, what is common to the successful ones and what they do that the failed transformations didn't do, right? So that was kind of the methodology of the thinking. So um, uh, let me just briefly paint for you what the downward spiral looks like from a security perspective and show why it has a lot to do with IT operations. And then I'm going to go into the key findings of the research and then the methodology. One of the things that you typically see in um, security in real life is that you have these kind of, uh, either you have policies and procedures that have been documented, or maybe there aren't any, right? Um, but even if they are documented, they're not really, they match kind of the ideal, but they don't resemble what's actually happening in practice. So what you often have is uh, where you have the most amount of friction is you have, you know, the application developers and so forth, you know, kind of uh, delivering new, you know, building new things, and then they, because the pre-production environment and the test environment isn't secure, when they go into the production environment, nothing works, right? Has anyone been in that situation where, uh, you know, you, you, you've seen things kind of go into production and fail spectacularly? Does that kind of resonate with you at all? So, you know, in order to make these things work, right, you have to bring out the crowbar and the sledgehammer and say, all right, now you've got to make production look as insecure as pre-production, right? So now operations is undoing everything. Uh, well, actually, now, you know, you're undoing everything that, uh, you know, you might have done to make production secure. And all these last-minute changes that you're making to make these things work are never really documented, right? And then, by the way, this is what you know catches the auditor's attention, and that's when you start generating audit findings, which causes a whole bunch of urgency in fixing those, um, and you know creates more unplanned work, right? Uh, and you're not actually fixing root cause, and this is actually what causes a downward spiral that uh, you know uh, we've modeled. So the consequence of this is that access is not controlled, right? You know, you're having to let developers into the production environment. So your perfect access controls that you've set up in production are now undone. You know, uh, resources are wasted, people are in reactive mode, changes are not being documented, you know, compliance starts piling on, right? And you end up with this very undesirable effects that happen, right? So uh, this is bad for security, also bad for operations as well. So, uh, so kind of going into that, what, you know, is it true you know, that what we observe in the high performers is that, hey, what's good for operations is good for security, and what's good for security is good for operations. You know, is it true that, hey, if IT operations achieve this goal, it's one of the natural byproducts is good security as well? And so we kind of went back to first principles, and maybe to make these, you know, a little bit more focused, kind of the question that we were seeking to answer was, what are those subset of controls that also help operational objectives as well, as opposed to ones that are viewed as, you know, irrelevant objectives that are just purely cost or bureaucracy, right? What controls are the most effective and efficient? What controls have the highest rate of return? You know, uh, how do you measure, you know, performance, right? What is the link between controls and performance? 
you know, how do you prove that, you know, uh, internal rate of return or return on investment of good controls, right? So these are things that we felt didn't have really good answers. Um, and we wanted to prove that, hey, you know, there's a common set of problems that if you focus on, you know, you will simultaneously, you know, solve operational objectives as well as security objectives simultaneously. So the trick is, what are those and how do you measure it? So just to kind of frame the, uh, our inspiration and our thought process, one of the uh, cues, you know, one of the, uh, what, the methodology that we really wanted to replicate was a group of MIT researchers who benchmarked almost every major motive, automotive manufacturing plant in the 1980s. And uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, they basically found that when they did the benchmarking, certain manufacturing plants had one half the defects, one half the floor space, one half the working process, one half the cycle time, uh, one half the inventory. They said, ah, those are the high performers, right? Let's go out and capture and codify what they did. And they turned that into a body of knowledge called lean manufacturing, right? So how many people here have heard of lean manufacturing? Uh, how about uh, Deming, Dr. Deming and TQM? Okay. Uh, how about Dr. Goldratt and Theory of Constraints? Okay, so Deming, it sounds like, is the most... Uh, so between Dr. Deming, Dr. Goldratt, and the lean manufacturing people, uh, those were kind of considered the three primary fathers of the manufacturing movement, right? And... Uh, in fact, if you take a look at the quotes around you know, General Motors and Ford, kind of the people that are being quoted is uh, this guy, um, Dr. Womack. You know, so he's at MIT at the Center, Mo you know, for, uh, Center for Automotive Research, or some clever acronym. But you know, those are the people who invented lean manufacturing. So uh, Dr. Goldratt, he said something kind of interesting. You know, when he was kind of working on his um, you know, work called Theory Constraints, um, he said, in any field of science, there are really three distinct phases. Classification, correlation, and causation. You know, classification is sort of like earth, air, fire, water. We're just labeling things, right? You know, we're, uh, you know, kind of just trying to figure out what's different, right? And maybe kind of uh, labeling them. But, you know, one of the big break, you know, one of the things that you, that causes a breakthrough in science, right, is when you can get to correlation, right? You know, saying, oh, some chemicals, if I eat, are tasty and nutritious. Some of them are lethal, right? It's good to know the difference between the two. Um, and in the physical sciences, you know, the real breakthrough was in the periodic table. You know, they said, you know, hey, all the elements you know, that are on the left-hand side of the periodic table, when you throw them into water, you know, have wildly exothermic reactions, right? Lithium, sodium, potassium. <laughs> What's below potassium? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you know, so th that left-hand thing, right? When, um, and so once you identify that, right, then you say, oh, it's the outer electron shell that dominates, you know, the physical attributes and the reactivity. And that's what gets you to causation, right? That comes to a causative model. So kind of our claim is that, you know, where are we in IT? We're sort of in this classification phase, right? We're sort of labeling things and, you know, ITIL and COBIT. Uh, but we really, what we really don't know is, you know, how does controls relate to performance, right? How does controls relate to the achievement of the goals, right? Which ones are the most important? How do you measure that? So that's kind of uh, what we set out to do. And causation is kind of what we try to achieve in the visible ops methodology. So part of our goal was to get to causation, correlation, so we can eventually get to causation. How am I doing so far? Is this, uh, can you give me a thumbs up saying, Gene, I'm tracking with you? Thumbs down means uh, I'm just trying to stay awake. <laughs> Thumbs up? Okay. All right, so, um, <clears throat> so science is made up of two parts, theory building and theory testing. 
right? And so I, what I found is that in IT and uh, maybe even IT security more than any other place in IT is we're very good at building theories, but we're not as good at testing theories uh, from an operational perspective. And so, um, you know, what are the specific theories that we're trying to test? Well, there are three things that we observed in the high performers that, you know, we, you know, looking back, you know, we knew there was something different about these organizations because you could tell in a 15-minute phone call that there's something really different about these folks. It took us many more years to come up, come up with a concrete language for it, but, you know, here's what they are. Uh, one is they all had a culture of change management, meaning, you know, if you ask the organization, how do you make changes around here? You know, they wouldn't say you just log into it and make a change. They would all universally say, you know, you have to go to some sort of governing body and ask. And if you can't get authorization, you can't make the change, right? Uh, and when you say, when you kind of suggest, hey, isn't change management bureaucratic? Doesn't it slow things down? Doesn't it suck the will to live out of everybody it touches? They'll say no. You know, we do over a thousand successful production changes a week with a change success rate of over ninety-nine percent, right? That's not slow. That's really fast. So they're like, hmm, interesting. The second thing that we found was um, they all had a culture of causality, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, actually, what's the best illustration of this? Microsoft, they did a study of their best customers uh, as part of their ITIL professional services offering, and they found that their best customers rebooted their servers 20 times less often than their average customers and also had five times fewer blue screens of death, right? Same technology, probably same type of people, Right? And yet we're getting profoundly different you know, uh, results out of you know, their uh, offerings. And so this very much matched what we found in our high performers in that you know, whenever you ask a high performer, you know, where do outages and service impairments and security breaches come from, they'll say change. 80% of these issues come from change, and 80% of meantime preparers trying to figure out what change. So where do you suppose high performers look first when things go wrong? What changed, exactly. Right, so... Um, do you get, quantitatively, how do you measure that? You end up with lower mean time to pair, right? Uh, higher mean time between failure. But my first, one of my favorite metrics is first fix rate. What percentage of fixes work the first time, right? Do you see how blindly rebooting servers brings down first fix rate and looking at change first increases first fix rate? Does that make sense? Uh, does anyone have a friend who kind of is known to sort of fix things just by rebooting? <laughs> I mean, it's good for laptops, terrible for mission-critical infrastructure, right? Um, so what we found is high performers typically have a first fix rate of over 90%, and Microsoft said that, you know, in their worst customers, it's 20 times less than that. We found it's probably around 50%. The third thing that we found was that all of the high performers you know, have a culture of, let's call it planned work, right? It's the difference between a low fuel light on a car and six guys running down the highway with gas cans. Right? I mean, but they both get the job done, right? but I mean, they're profoundly different ways of working. In the first case, you can fix it next week with less urgency and less staff. Right? You can do it with one person. In the second case, you don't have a choice. You have a security incident, you have a mission-critical outage or a service impairment. You have to mobilize everybody to, you know, to get the thing working again. Right? So you know, the first case is less urgency, less people, less effort, less cost, and um, in the Second case, it's just a lot of firefighting. So far, so good? Am I, this kind of, am I painting a picture of kind of what we saw? So this is what we observed. So let's, you know, we wanted to go out and test that. So, so we wanted to test the theory. So our goal here was to, uh, we benchmarked 98 organizations in the last three years. Um, and you know, we, we got a phenomenal response given that the early version of the survey took like you know, three hours to do. Um, 
There are 97 mandatory questions, 97 optional questions. We've got a good span of organizations. You know, uh, the average size of the organization of IT organizations was about 483. Uh, average IT budget was about 114 million. Broad range of industries. You know, uh, I was thrilled with this. I mean, it turns out you, we can actually could make some very decisive findings because of this range of demographics. You know, note that kind of uh, finance and insurance, which includes banks, wasn't the majority of them. So uh, uh, I'll show you how we used you know uh, that demographic split to kind of negate some you know, often crazy claims, uh, you know, about why people don't need to be secure or why people don't need to be efficient. So let me show you, before I go into the methodology, I'm going to share with you the two big surprises that came out of the survey, uh, the benchmark. Surprise number one was there existed high performers. Well, that wasn't a surprise, but the surprise was how good, how much better the high performers were than your typical IT organization, right? Uh, what we found was that the 13% of respondents that were uh, benchmarked had eight times as many projects completed, four and a half times as many applications and software platforms under management. They were uh, four and a half times more services under management. Seven they were implementing and authorizing seven times as many changes. When they made the changes, they had one half the change failure rate, one quarter the fixed failure rate, five times higher services admin ratios, and also three times higher budgets as a function of that revenues, operating expense. It's like, wow. <laughs> That's interesting, right? I mean, why? In the lean manufacturing world, they found a factor of 2x difference between high and low, right? One half, one half, one half, one half. What this is showing is that in, our, in, the, in the IT world, the difference between high and not high is 5 to 8x, right? So that means high performance are significantly outperforming um, you know, their peers. The other kind of surprise here is this, this last point. You know, uh, IT budgets are three times higher. You know, there's kind of two conjectures here, right? One is high performers are high performers because they have more money. But I like to, I find the other argument to be far more persuasive, which is that, you know, IT has two jobs, deliver new projects to the business, operate and maintain what you have. Low performers can't do either, right? And so, you know, how easy it is, is it to get more budget <laughs> if you are profoundly failing at those two things, right? You can't get anything approved, big or small, right? So high performers earn the right to spend more money and get more budget. How am I doing? Is this making sense? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? So, you know, your lack of questions, I'll take lack of questions as disbelief or even hostility. So please, uh, you know, ask your questions. Yes. Um, I, obviously, I think you have considered the size of the organization. Yep. That, that factor has been normalized. Yeah, everything's been normalized. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. More talented employees. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Uh, there's kind of two sides of that argument, right? One is, um, you know, we're destined to be low performers because we can never hire the best employees. <laughs> but I think the more reasonable argument is like, hey, no, we're just doing, you know, there's smart people everywhere, but we're just doing the wrong things or doing the right things wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, so I, I think the, there's just a lot of evidence out there in the uh, manufacturing world that says, you know what, you know, demographically, well, actually, we can probably boil it down to turnover. <laughs> yeah, you, the people are better because they stay longer, right? Uh, which is what we're going to prove out in the next one. Yeah. Survey sample, did you say that the, the 98 uh, companies that returned the surveys were, I mean, that was, those are the ones who actually finished it and the others just didn't complete yeah, we, it? Yeah, it, it is a low, yeah, it was a long survey. <laughs> 
it is certain to a sense certain self-selecting. But we found was that if you compare the people who took it first, the, the high completion rates and the low completion rates, they all the questions they didn't answer were intermingled. It wasn't like uh, they gave up. <laughs> I think all of them, if you take a look at the distribution of unanswered questions, it was because they didn't know. Uh, but yeah, there is a there is a self-selecting bias in there. Absolutely. Do you think it would make your, the differences even more dramatic? If <laughs> yeah, actually, that's good. You're right. It would probably even amplify the differences. Uh, let me go to, uh, okay, next. Oh, actually, one more other thing that I think is interesting. Uh, when, when I've been briefing the high performers on this, to a T, each one of the high performers love this because, you know, they said, you know what? We get accused by the business of costing too much. You cost more than your peers. You gold plate everything. You never want to be nimble, right? And what they found was that we're giving them the language to say, oh, no, you're getting something really valuable in exchange for the, you know, for the dollars that you're spending, right? More projects, you know, better quality, more security, right? And so uh, you know, what we found is that we're giving them a language to say, hey, this is, this is what you're getting uh, in exchange for us being high performers. But it's not only just operational measures. It's security measures as well. Um, when, what we found was that when high performers have a security breach, right, and we all might have security breaches, loss events are one-fifth as likely to result in a uh, security breach that one-fifth is likely to turn into a loss event, reputational loss, financial loss, you know, uh, you know whatever loss, you know, however they defined it, right? They're one-fifth, almost one-fifth as likely for, to uh, have that breach detected by an automated control versus like um, a customer or a newspaper or, you know, um, a vendor, right? In other words, you know, they kept it inside the family, right, as opposed to having someone else say, oh, by the way, I just noticed that, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah is missing, right? And mean time to detect in the high performers measured in minutes versus hours in the medium performers and uh, days or even weeks for the low performers, right? So isn't it interesting <laughs> that, um, you know, this is, seems to also validate that what's good for security is good for operations and vice versa, right? And, you know, uh, also we found that high performers also spend three times more on security as well. So again, is it, are they high performers because they spend more money? I know a lot of people who have money, <laughs> but they're not high performers, right? It's, you know, how well do you spend it, and do you, uh, can you show value on a day-to-day -day basis? Okay, the second uh, big surprise uh, is represented in this graph. Oh, so the goal of the survey is really to link controls with performance, right? Controls, performance. And what we found was that we said, you know, of the 318 COVID controls, we selected 63 that fit six ITIL process areas of access, change, configuration management, release management, service level management, and resolution. Um, and we said, oh, we found that the Pareto principle does apply. You don't have to do all of them. 21 of them have, uh, are what we have, we call foundational controls that have the majority of the effect. But wouldn't it be interesting if there were a set of controls that every high performer had that, and every medium and low performer did not have. In other words, are there a set of a small handful of controls that's universally present in high and universally absent in medium and low? Wouldn't that be interesting? And there were. There were two. Um, how do you read this graph? Uh, what this graph shows on the right is um, each pi wedge, it's a polar vector diagram, each one of those pi wedges is a foundational control. And you can see that they fit in the access control areas, change, configuration, release, service level management, resolution. The size of the pie wedge um, is what percentage of the high-performing cluster had that control, right? And the dark line is what percentage of medium performers 
uh, have that control. And so what we want to do is find what was most different. And you know, you see that change in configuration management are typically where you find the biggest differences. But there were two that had this characteristic of universal present in high, universally present absent in medium and low. And that was, do you monitor a system for unauthorized change? And the second one was said, are there defined consequences for intentional unauthorized change? <laughs> so they say the goal of science is to explain the most amount of observable phenomena with the fewest number of principles, confirm deeply held insights, you know, confirm deeply held intuitions and reveal surprising insights. In my opinion, kind of this is what achieves that, right? I mean, they all these kind of findings achieve that because like, wow, why is it that, you know, when, when you hold these two controls up against the light, I see a culture of change management, right? I see a tone at the top that says this is important. Right, uh, as well, and also it's, it's so important that we can't just manage by belief or by the honor system. We have to manage by fact. We have to put automated controls in place to make sure that people are actually following the policy. Um, and it also says that you know this is what kind of discriminates high performers from low performers and medium performers. In other words, statisticians you know say a discriminant quality is when you have these things where just by looking at those two things, it's almost a hundred percent accurate predictor of whether someone's in the high performer category or not. So far, so good. How am I doing? Maybe make one observation before uh, we go into the methodology. Um, talking with Larissa, Larissa beforehand, we were talking about it's interesting that security has typically hung their hat on access controls, right? You know, do you know what people can get access to certain uh, IT elements, right? But uh, you know, by the book, right? By auditors, you know, they would say, you know what? There's really three things that are important: access, change, and business continuity. And what this shows is that. You know, no matter how much you invest in access, you just don't get the, you know, you don't get the high-performing benefits, right? It's only when you make the breakthrough and change, right? That's what causes the discriminant, uh, you know, to flip. Any questions before we go into the methodology? All right. Yeah. The black. You said the black lines on the right-hand side graph refers to the one on the left, right? What are the black lines on the left? Oh, then? I'm sorry. Yeah. So on the left-hand side, uh, that's the medium performers in the color. Low performers are in the black line. And it's kind of interesting that if you take a look at what's least different, is access is changing configuration. <laughs> so in other words, they're both equally bad in that process areas, in those process areas. All right. So how did we do this? <clears throat> Again, the goal is to find the correlation between controls and performance. So the first thing we had to do is pick some IT controls. So the way we did that, we took the six leading process areas in ITIL, right? Uh, that people said, here's where you should start, or here's what's most valuable, right? From a visible ops perspective, you know, we, we thought it was change, but we wanted to cast a net wide and really test, you know, whatever people thought, you know, um, they thought, you know, was you know, worthy of, you know, working on first. So it's. Um, we tested release management processes, which answers the question, where, where does infrastructure come from before it gets deployed, right? Pre-production, testing, you know, all that stuff. Um, control processes, which is control, you know, change control and configuration controls. Resolution processes, which are, you know, what happens when, you know, something in production uh, loses service or gets impaired, right? How do you get it back into production? Service level management. Right, you know, uh, you know, this is kind of a big craze right now in uh, IT management, security management. Right, uh, so we picked all six. Right, and we said, all right, for each one of those six control categories, let's pick some yes/no controls. And we took those out of COBIT. And, you know, uh, so in other words, we got 63 controls that map to those six control areas. Right, and we, you know, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, they're not the, the same number of controls in each one. 
but uh, kind of, so let's just say the first version of the survey had 900 controls, and we painfully, you know, chopped it down to something reasonable to like 97. Uh, so do you guys see how we now have a set of control process areas with the controls underneath them that can be answered yes, no? So far, so good? Yep. Uh, thumbs up means I'm with you. <laughs> okay. So now we've got to find some performance measures, right? And so what we said is, hey, IT has two goals, deliver projects to the business securely, efficiently, effectively, maintain and operate them securely, efficiently, et cetera. So we chose operational measures like, uh, you know, squishy ones like user satisfaction. Uh, but then we, I love the measures that you can actually measure with a ruler or a stopwatch or with dollar signs. Things like unplanned work, well, that's kind of squishy too, but change success rate, first fixed rate, number of hours dedicated towards weekly maintenance, services admin ratio, you know, staffing ratios, security measures, um, like how much you spend, um, how, much, how many security breaches, I'm sorry, what percentage of security breaches turn into a loss, which ones are detected by an automated control, how many security incidents are actually prosecuted to completion, right? So note that these are all percentage measures, uh, so you don't have the, you know, zero problem. In other words, if, I, if you have zero security breaches, is that because you're a high performer and you do security well, or is it because you're a low performer and you just don't know? <laughs> right? So every one of these is a yield question. Um, and some audit measures. So step one, what we wanted to do was uh, kind of the formative step, which was, you know, is there a correlation between IT controls and performance? So the way we did that was um, uh, for each one of six control categories, we asked, you know, is it true that you know, as you increase the number of controls, performance goes up. In other words, or I should say, is it true that respondents, as they, uh, the number of controls go up in the respondents, their performance measures go up, right? So we used uh, a strict, you know, just a correlation test there, and we found yes. Uh, in almost every case, you know, uh, there was, you know, that, that effect. So that's important, right, because it says that controls are good for you, right, but it doesn't really help management focus. Right, this is sort of like buy low, sell high. <laughs> Doesn't say buy everything, right? Uh, you got to know which ones to buy. Buy low, sell high. Yeah, exactly. So that's where we get to identification of foundational controls. Uh, what we really want to do here is, you know, kind of say management intuition says that the 80-20 principle applies, right? 20% of the controls, you know, probably should account for 80% of the performance improvement. So which ones are they? So the way we did that is uh, as a conceptual model. Um, we said, you know, think of a load-bearing bridge with 100 struts, right? Wouldn't it be interesting if you could take away 80% of the struts and still be able to support the same engineering load? So the way we did that was sort of a manual uh, determinant analysis. What we did is we said for every control question, we split the population set into those who answered yes and those who answered no. And then for each one of those populations, we said for every performance measure, we said, is it true that the performance measure is different, statistically different, you know, between those who said yes and no, right? Am I making sense? In other words, you know, think of uh, the yes population as one bell curve and the no population as another bell curve, right? If the bell curves sufficiently overlap, that's not statistically different. If they are different, you know, if they are like the tails don't, you know, if they over, only overlap on the tails, then it's like, wow, you know, that really does make a difference, right? So what we found was that some controls, no controls affected every performance measure. Some controls impacted many performance measures and some, you know, measured only a handful, right? And so what we did was we said for each one of the six control categories, we added in, for every control, we basically counted how many performance measures did it hit, sorted them by the number of performance measures hit, and then added in the one with the most. And then we went down the list and said we will only add it into the set 
if and only if it adds a performance measure that hasn't been covered by the set already and stop when you've reached the entire span, right? Am I making sense? So uh, we did this by hand. <laughs> 63 times 98. We did it many, many times. Uh, but you know, all we had were the keys, right? And when we looked at, um, you know, when we uh, <laughs> uncovered the keys, I mean, I'll be honest, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was just like, holy cow, you've got to be kidding me. Um, here's what we found. In every case, we could dis reduce the control set down to three or four. Let me, um, let's go through one of my favorites, which is change. We found four foundational controls, right, which seem to have the majority of the performance impact. Let me just read them to you, and I'm going to ask you a question. Those foundational controls were, do you track your change success rate? Do you monitor systems for unauthorized change? Are there defined consequences for intentional unauthorized change? And four is, do you use change success rate information to avert potentially risky changes? Can anyone come up with a conjecture of why these affect performance more than, say, do you have a formal IT change management process? Is it because you have a feedback loop in here? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's a great one. There's a, keep going. What do you mean? Well, the last one uses information from the first one there. Yeah, it's like, uh, so my interpretation of what you just said is these guys are using this process to control the future, right? They're averting. <laughs> they're not only, uh, they're affecting their be future behavior based on, based on past behavior. Yep, that's one. Any other conjectures? So why would these four questions affect performance more than do you have a formal IT change management process? Yeah. Because they're focused on what are they actually doing with that change rather than if they have the change or not. Holy cow, yeah, they're actually doing things with the formal change management process. Yep, that's definitely one. Any other? We're missing one that... Uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll just put it out there. Accountability, right? This, these are showing that you're holding people accountable to actual measurable results, right? It's like, it's not enough just to have a formal change management process. I want to see the outcomes, <laughs> right, of averting risky changes, of, you know, uh, uh, consequences of what happens when you circumvent the process, right? So, so we thought that was very fascinating, right? Well, let me give you another one, like release management processes. Do you have a standardized process for building releases? Yep, that sounds good. Do you have a definitive software library, right? That's kind of the virtual, virtual filing cabinet of officially supported software. That makes sense. But the second one blew me away. For release testing purposes, do you maintain an identical testing environment to your production environment? Wow. <laughs> what happens when you have a, do 25 man weeks of testing, but production doesn't match pre-production? Can anyone guess? <laughs> what did you mean by that? Uh, it doesn't work. All right. Well, you know, it's, it, it's actually worse than that. You don't know if it's going to work or doesn't work, right? Because now it's based on luck, right? What you're testing is you're, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the answer is uh, you don't know. So we thought this was very interesting, right? Uh, because this helps kind of, uh, we believe this helps management focus because we're identifying the key areas that, you know, really seem to high, have the highest effect. And in, when we look at these things, we're not saying that you don't need a formal change management process. We're just saying, you know, that's just an automatic byproduct of doing these four things. So it was going to naturally kind of uh, help management focus on the right uh, outcomes. Step three, we have to test 
you know, is it true that uh, high, heavy users of foundational controls outperform those, you know, the light users, the light or occasional users of foundational controls? And we found the answer was yes. We took the, uh, we took two population sets: those with the 25 highest percentile of foundational controls and those with the 25 percent least. Um, and we uh, measured their performance, and we kind of manufactured a measure here called top half count. We said for every respondent, we calculated their top half count uh, by kind of asking for the 25 performance measures, how many of those performance measures were you at the median or better? So your best possible score was 25 out of 25, you know, of your performance measures were at the median or better, and your worst score, potential score was zero, right? And so we found top quartile of foundational control users outperformed medium, uh, the bottom foundational control users. So that's nice, but how do we even focus more than that? Wouldn't it be great to you know, be able to find out what is preventing medium performers from becoming high performers? Right? And that's, um, that's where we really wanted to uh, figure out you know, uh, the clusters. So how many people have used cluster analysis in their coursework? <laughs> All right. So cluster analysis is, uh, I think commercially it's used most in uh, retailing, I think, uh, where they basically say, hey, we're going to reconstruct buying demographics just by looking at purchasing receipts. So you can say, oh, hey, here's a you know, group of uh, fixed income retirees. You can tell because uh, they buy a lot of bran right, every week. Right? You know, here's the uh, you know, affluent teenagers, and you can tell because you know, they buy you know, Britney Spears albums. And right, here's the, you, know, you can do this just by looking at um, you know, their, their purchasing behavior. And so you can use that to do marketing campaigns and so forth. So what we did was uh, we built clusters based on their control questions, and we seeded it with you know, uh, one binary measure, which was, you know, are they in the top 25 percentile and top half count? What we found was three clusters. Here's what I see when I, I see a high perform, I see a high controls cluster that has almost all the foundational controls. I see a low controls cluster that does almost nothing except for access and resolution, meaning they know how to issue and revoke passwords, and they have trouble ticketing systems. And I see medium controls which, you know, they're somewhere in between. But, you know, I like to call high control, you know, kind of intuitively, right, we're like, oh, high controls, they're probably the high performers. Low controls, they're probably the oblivious ones. But medium controls, you know, we think they're the ones that smoke more and enjoy it less. They're, they're probably, you know, kind of, we're, we're kind of hypothesizing that they're probably spending more time on controls, but we're getting the least in return. And so uh, this is where we, uh, and, you know, when we saw this graph, we're like, we got it. <laughs> We've nailed it, right? It's true, right? Here's what this graph shows. Um, each one of these kind of three things that looks like a little slider bar, it's like a, it's a box plot diagram. And uh, think of each one of them as a bell curve. You know, the box is the 25th and 75th percentile. The thick line is the median, so the top of the bell, right? And the top and bottom of the sliders is the tips of the, uh, the bell. So the High, high, medium, and low controls clusters are on the bottom, and then the top half count is on the y-axis, right? And here's what we see. We see high performers have the highest top half count, right, with some amount of variance. Low controls have the lowest top half count with even more variance, but look at the guys in the middle. They're somewhere in between, but they have the highest variance of them all, right? In fact, the lowest performer of them all is in the medium controls cluster, right? So it's like, man, it is true. It's like the medium controls people are the people who are just trying, you know, many controls, but they're not getting ignition, right? Uh, they're not getting the catalytic effects of the controls uh, like the high performers. 
So the next step was to uh, say, all right, what's different about the medium performers and the high performers? In other words, are there a handful of things that's impeding medium performers from blossoming into the high performers? And uh, so this table, what this shows is the percentage of high performers with that specified control, percentage of medium cluster with that specified control, and the difference. And we sort by the difference. And you know, I shared with you the top two ones that had this almost discriminant quality. Do you monitor for an unauthorized change? Do you have to find consequences for intentional and unauthorized change? But you know, there's something even more amazing kind of if you look further down the list. All the top six are change in configuration management related. Right? Do you have a formal configuration management process? Do you automate it? Do you track your change success rate? Do you uh, provide relevant information out of your configuration management processes to other process areas? It's like, holy cow. <laughs> That's amazing, right? It says that you know, the key problem that must be solved are in the change in configuration management issues. So step five, what are the rewards of focusing on the foundational controls? And I shared with you kind of the decisive performance differences between high and uh, versus medium slash low. Right? Eight times, five times, six times, three times, right? I mean, it's just this kind of amazing thing. Just one more um, stat that you know, kind of makes me go, wow, that's, that's an unexpected finding, but yet it kind of makes sense, it totally makes sense. When you look at the number of hours that these clusters dedicate towards maintenance windows, you know, uh, where you kind of restrict the planned changes in maintenance, high performers spend twice as much time in scheduled maintenance as medium performers and five times as much on low than low performers. Any conjectures on why that might be? Why would high performers spend five times as much time on planned maintenance than low performers? Well, they're ahead of the problems. They're, they're thinking ahead. They're fixing things before they break. Yeah, right. They're filling up the gas tank <laughs> uh, before they go on the highway. Right, exactly. Uh, and so that, that's uh, what we found. What we expected was High performers are effective and efficient, so they're going to do more work in less time. And what we found was like, well, no. What, we, what the data says is, wow, high performer says the worst thing you can do is have something blow up because you didn't spend enough time on proactive maintenance. So that, that's kind of a cool finding. So does this confirm deeply held intuitions? And you know, I, what this does, in my mind, right, is really kind of crystallize some hypotheses that we've had and that, that was baked into visible ops. Uh, but you know, from a security perspective, I think it really kind of uncovers this problem, which is that why is a common practice to focus primarily on access controls, right? When the big payoff is in change control, right? Um, and yeah, I think this is something that we were thrilled with the finding because it says that those organizations that focus on change control, no matter how much access controls you focus on, you cannot get the burst into high performance. Right, until you focus on change controls. And yet, it's not a new concept uh, from the security perspective. Right? CIA, what, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Right? Um, you know, all of those things are, are on change. So uh, I'm going to show you some system dynamics diagrams, but uh, uh, we have... Oh, we have five minutes? Okay, cool. <clears throat> well, let me show you some, um, some of the theories that this seems to uh, validate. Um, I'll give you the, the first chapter of Visible Ops, right, which is a, you know, the proven transformations, uh, the codification of transformations that worked that were distilled from comparing the transformations that failed. Right? And we're going to tell this entire story using only up and down arrows. Right? Uh, Stephen Katz, he was the first CISO for Citibank, and he said, uh, Gene, when dealing with executives, stick with small numbers and primary colors. Right? 
Jean's corollary to that is, at a certain level of seniority, that is not sufficient. You must stick with up and down. Happy, sad, right? So let's see if we can tell the whole story of you know, the necessary transformation you must make in phase one before you can move to phase two and phase three. What we're trying to tell this mythical business executive or this IT executive or, you know, God help us, a security executive, is, you know, say, you know, what happens when you have a given rate of change, right? And you have an ever-increasing number of failing changes or unauthorized changes. What happens to unplanned work? Does it go up or down? Up. Does it go up a little or a lot? A lot. Exactly. Right. So unplanned work will go up until it consumes 100% of your work time, right? And... You know, I've seen this happen where organizations are, you know, you call this overtime, 2 a.m. pagers, you know, staff burnout and staff turnout over, right? If you're making a sufficiently high number of changes and you have a sufficiently low change success rate and a sufficiently high mean time to repair, then you can spend all your time on unplanned work. In fact, this is when you, it's actually better just to put down the shovel and step away from the hole, which is the part of the intervention, right? Which is what we're saying is that, you know, can you see how if you have a given rate of change, that same rate of change, and you can bring down the number of failing changes and unauthorized changes, right? You can't always control failing changes, but you can absolutely control the number of unauthorized changes, right? What happens on plan work if you do that? It goes down. Right, exactly. In fact, invisible we call this electrify the fence, right? The goal is not to kill people who touch the fence. It's just to make sure that management is never under this illusion to have a functional change management process when you don't actually have one. As an uh, anecdotal piece, which actually was a very formative uh, story in our world, which is um, when we wrote Visible Ops, is that there's a woman named Jackie Shaver. She was uh, leading the ITIL change management uh, process at the Florida Department of Education. She said, in our first 30 days of our change management pilot, you know, we had, say, 200 changes. In the second month, it went down by 50%. In the third month, it went down by another 20%. She was asking the question, why would the number of changes be going down? Right? It's like it's the business isn't asking for fewer changes, and we're firefighting just as much. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we still have the same amount of unplanned work. Right? What, do you, what do you think she found? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what she found. Right? When she actually instrumented the infrastructure, right, she found out, holy crap, the number of changes went up. <laughs> right? The only thing that went down were people showing up to the change management meetings. Right? So can anyone kind of hypothesize why, what would cause someone to stop showing up to change management meetings? Gave up? Why, why, what would cause them to give up? Workload, Workload right? You know, is this meaningless bureaucracy that I have to go ask and get approval for, and I have to, you know, wait six weeks to get approval? So, uh, what happens if uh, what happens if you still need to make changes, and you feel like the change management process is bureaucratic? Circumvented, exactly, right? So, this is why. What I, you know, it's interesting to say that. That's what Jackie Schaefer did. She said, I have the same amount of unplanned work, <laughs> yet, so therefore I must have the same number of changes, <laughs> right? So the market of an effective change management process is that you have unplanned work going down, change success rate going up, zero unauthorized change. So unplanned work isn't free, right? Uh, where does unplanned work come at the expense of? Planned work, right, exactly. So what we're trying to say is, hey, unplanned work and change management isn't a tactical issue, right? As unplanned work goes down, your ability to complete planned work goes up. In other words, for every project that you've made a commitment uh, that say, I'm going to deliver something by something by this time, right, if you're spending 100% of your unplanned work, you have no time to achieve planned work. And so that's what makes projects late. So as you increase completion of planned work, business satisfaction with IT goes up, and consequently, you know, your budget goes up as well. Or at least that's what we're seeing in the uh, benchmarking findings.
Um, I'm going to show you two more uh, uh, graphs, and then uh, that concludes the prepared part of this presentation. <clears throat> there were two, the, um, do I have time? We're a little bit flexible, but, but yeah, we need to conclude soon. Okay. Well, the lean manufacturers did two very clever, they did a very clever thing, which is they actually kind of proactively negated kind of the primary arguments why, in which case, in this case, the domestic auto manufacturers kind of, the excuses they gave of why they didn't need to be high performers. They said, you know, the Japanese have a lower cost base. They tested that. It's like, oh, it's not true. So, uh, they said, you know, you're comparing their best cars with our worst cars. So they controlled that. And they're like, no, if you look at just the luxury lines, right, you end up with the same, you know, uh, results. The two excuses I hear from uh, executives are, hey, high performers are probably the, only the largest IT organizations. It's like, well, Let's test that. It's like, no, it turns out medium performers are bigger than high performers. <laughs> right? There's a lot of variance in numbers, but it's like, that's not true. Right? Uh, you know, that's not an excuse um, you know, for not being a high performer. The other thing that we've heard is that we don't have to be a high performer because we're not a bank, right? especially you hear this in security. It's like, wow, you know, that's interesting. You know, when we you know, looked at the demographics of uh, uh, high performers versus medium performers, we saw that they're almost the same. In other words, you know, from a demographic perspective, there are, it's not just banks. It's, it's you know spans almost the entire spectrum of industries hit by medium performers. So we kind of like this just because um, it helps negate kind of these you know things excuses that people will give why not to do the right thing. So conclusions: uh, there are ITIL and COBIT are full of good ideas. You don't have to do all of them. The experimental experimental results say that you know. Focusing on the 21 foundational controls really do hit most all the performance measures. You know that are spanned by the ones that are not in foundational controls. Foundational control users have higher performance, um, as measured by many many ways, and uh, so there are significant rewards for being a high performer, right? And so we think this helps management focus on the right things to achieve the right results. Let me make one last call to action. We're uh, we've assembled a lot of research to work on this problem, and if you believe that security is more than just a technology problem and that security is valuable and measurable. And uh, if you want to join a group of academic and industry researchers who care more about this problem than anyone else I know and uh, want to help solve these problems, uh, we are definitely interested in getting your name. We've been working with about four grad students and about uh, five uh, PhD researchers, including four academic researchers, um, to help solve what we believe are some of the biggest problems in the space. And if you're interested in that, just drop me a note. I'm GeneK at tripwire.com. Uh, so with that, um, thank you very much, and I appreciate the time.